we're on. Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. Today, we are joined by Gavril Gavrilov. I hope I got that right. The Chief Commercial Officer of Humans in the Loop. We had the f- another founder of Humans in the Loop on, I don't know, a couple of years ago, I feel like, more than 18 months ago, and we wanted to have somebody back on just to talk about what's changed. Gary, I can call you Gary, yeah? Absolutely, please do. And thank you for having me. Oh, no, thank you very much for coming. How are you, by the way? I am I am well. It's It's been a crazy start of the year for us, which is good. Uh, and uh, I just uh, came back from, from a conference in, uh, in France uh, last week, focusing around, you know, developments in the AI space, which was a, a great event for me to be at. And uh, yeah, I'm, again, happy, very happy to be here, part of this conversation. And thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. Can you talk to me a little bit about this conference? This was in Cannes, right? This was in Cannes, correct. So this is the uh, World AI Foundation, or rather conference, uh, which is um, essentially, it's a multinational event, although there, it's it's kind of focused on the, the French market. Mm-hmm. We had a collection of some of the global leaders in, in the AI space, um, but they also had an amazing startup track. So I was fortunate enough to be able to talk to well over 20 different uh, startups in the AI space. And I was just amazed at some of the um, developments and new ideas that are just entering this industry, um, which is for the most part and in, in, in the public eye now focused on, you know, chat GPT and, and you know, self-driving cars, for example. But there's so much beneath the surface. Um, so yeah, it was, an, it was an eye-opening event for me. I do believe that in the technology world, look, we have this whole brand that we call X Undercover, right? E-commerce undercover, innovation undercover, and I think maybe we should do something called AI undercover. Because I do think a lot of the stuff that happens in the tech world is not just what we see on the surface, but what's happening underneath. And in a way, it's almost like a positive iceberg, right? What you'd see is just the tip stuff that's floating at the top of the ocean, but what's happening underneath is what's way more interesting. Is there a way for you to just maybe give me some of the hottest topics or whatever was happening there? Not the stuff that surprised you per se, but just new ideas that maybe people haven't been speaking about? Sure. I guess for me, the the biggest takeaway from from that particular event, and it kind of ties into the way we're we're looking at the the whole AI industry. Mm -hmm. And like you said, this positive iceberg, and of course, on, on, on the flip side, this this negative iceberg, you know, people tend to focus on whatever is trending on, you know, Facebook, Instagram, whatever, whatever they manage to catch on TechCrunch or or any of the other tech publications uh, online. And that's sort of the flavor of the day. Um, And there was actually a funny anecdote uh, from from this conference, uh, which was one of the presenters joked that uh, I'm proud to be part of this panel where it took us all of eight minutes before we mentioned chat GPT, whereas all of the other panels and discussions basically had chat GPT pop up in the conversation within the first 30 seconds. I'm so anti-hype. Like, I almost wish that that thing didn't come out or that it didn't get published because I still think we could have a substantive conversation about artificial intelligence and its impact on what's going on in the world and technology. But that elephant walked into the room like we couldn't stop it. So I agree with you. Eight minutes in, we didn't talk about it yet. But yeah, I get it. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, that's that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's a sign of the times, uh, yeah. I guess, and I'm also anti-hype, as you as you put it. But you know, we're we're all part of the same ecosystem. So, yeah. as much as we don't want to, we kind of have to, you know, go with go with the flow, at least to a certain a certain extent, if we yeah. want to be seen as relevant, you know, particularly from a marketing perspective. And, right. and people who are 
deeply within the industry and are in the know, sort of the people that are in the kitchen, they can see through the hype. And, and you know, as, as one of the presenters put it, you know, large language models have been in development since the 1960s. Right. You know, and now it's 2023 and people are getting all up in arms uh, because of this predictive chatbot, which is, you know, it's, it's a novelty, at least to a large extent. I mean, there's certainly technological innovations there, but... So, so LLMs, right, these large language models have been around since the 1960s. But can we say that the biggest change is not in the models themselves, but in the throughput in the compute that's actually allowed to process them? In other words, that the ideas around LLMs and large language models were sophisticated enough in the 60s, but the technology wasn't there to handle them because back then you needed a whole room filled with like IBM... I don't even know what they were called anymore, A360s or something, to process this. But today, exactly, like I have enough processing power in on my iPhone 14 to do some of that. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but you know what I mean, yeah? Absolutely. I think you're absolutely correct. Let's say the the abundance or the accessibility of powerful, you know, IT infrastructure yep. has sort of democratized this concept that that has been in existence for, you know, over 50 years. It, more importantly than, than democratize it, it brought it to our living rooms, right? It brought it to yep. your cell phone, to your tablet, to your desktop. And, and in a way, I think that's what's driving the, the hype. And, and again, people kind of seem to be m missing the most important aspect of this. And, and, and this is that, okay, if you're uh, using, let's say, chat GPT to help you with your work, maybe you're generating some some content for SEO or or something similar, right? And you're and you're and you're so happy to have access to this tool. Well, you have to understand that you're using it as a as sort of a free user, right? So you're not paying anything for, for that. So we know the old adage that if you know if you're not paying you know for a service, then then you're the service, right? Right? Or or the product. But this technology, obviously, it has enterprise applications and enterprise pricing models and yeah. enterprise availability. Yeah. And that's a whole different universe that's kind of closed off, of, you know, from, from the public eye. But going back to your, your first question of kind of like what was, you know, surprising or interesting yeah. uh, for me to learn at this, this uh, event in Cannes was people are openly now talking about really the democratiz democratization, I guess, of of ai in the sense of not 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 in the sense of people really starting to understand either the fundamentals or the applications of ai but rather to have the ability to consume to use an end product you based on an ai and when we say companies that use ai and people that use ai in i guess in recent years, we've taken to thinking that these are, again, companies within the IT ecosystem globally, right. right? Specialized companies or automotive companies that are focusing on autonomous driving vehicles. But no, what, what this event really tried to push forward as an idea is that AI will and should be available and leveraged by anyone, anywhere. So regardless of which line of business you're in there's an aspect of ai based or machine learning based technology that you can you can utilize and uh one of the slides i guess uh, that really stands out in my mind is um basically said you know ai is the new electricity so ai in and of itself definitely can be or is a game changer but 
I guess, the applications and, and the processes and the innovations that you can spin off based on this technology are absolutely mind-boggling. So I guess to an extent, you know, the general public is approaching AI not, not completely unlike the way people approached electricity when it first. So Steve Jobs uh, said this famously, and I hate going back to, to quote him, but I just can't get this out of my head. You know, when he was talking to the founders of Dropbox, he was like, that, that's a feature. It's not an application right. on its own. That's a feature of everything. You're going to have like ubiquitous storage everywhere. And you're right. If we, if we came to the point where electricity was just being started, you would have been like, oh my God, this is going to change the world. And yet you just walk in your house now, flip on a switch. It's everywhere and runs everything you do. And I was actually having this conversation with somebody a couple of days ago. AI is already in so many things that we use and most people don't know it. I mean, if you just look at a recommendation engine on Amazon and then all the recommendation engines, there are thousands of places where artificial intelligence is being used. I can't get into the building that I went to look at today to rent a condominium without getting my face scanned. Whether you like it or not, it's everywhere. But if that's yeah. the case though, right? I don't know. Do you think about like the philosophical aspects? Because there were no philosophical aspects around like electrifying everything. But I feel like there's some philosophical challenges around the implementation of artificial intelligence everywhere. Was that a topic as well that people talked about? I'm, I'm sorry to say that it definitely was a topic on, on certain panels that kind of focused on these aspects. But they are... So I'll, I'll put it this way. Go ahead. To me, and, and to me personally, and to us at Humans in the Loop as an organization, they are inextricably connected. Go ahead. The, the technological and the ethical, philosophical aspects of this technology are, are absolutely connected and, and should be top of mind for, for all of us in the industry, but, but all of us as users of this technology, right? Um, but I think if you really want to go philosophical, it, it boils down to the control or the illusion of control or, or understanding and the illusion of understanding, right? Because electricity when when it was first invented it, it took a while to kind of explain to people what we now know uh, fairly well as a, as a physical process right right uh, there's a it, there's a physical process happening electricity it travels you know across conductors across wires uh, it terminates at, at some you know device that consumes electricity and it performs a task. Either a light comes on or a motor spins, and and so instinctively we as humans, even though we don't you know obviously touch electricity directly, we feel that we have control over it. So if we snip the wire at one end, the process ends, right? Whereas with AI, I think that level of understanding and that level of control is missing. You know, essentially you don't know what's going on in this machine. And we've all heard the explanation. Well, this is a pre-trained model. It has been trained on visual data. It has been shown 100,000 images of apples. So now it can recognize an apple when shown a brand new image. But the mechanisms which are used in order for that to happen are completely beyond the, the, the understanding of the general public, right? Yeah. So, so therein, I think, lies the foundation of this philosophical uh, then uh, question. And, and we'll get into that, I think, uh, further on in, in, in the conversation. Let's do it now. Okay, sure. Uh, so, so ethical AI to us is a core concept, and, it, and it's one of our founding principles. And, and when, you, when you say ethical AI, most people tend to think of the applications of, 
of an AI model or, or an ML system. Let's right. Say. So can we just, let's, let's define this so people can get a better understanding of this because we're going to back up into where the ethics are really, are where they really originate. A lot of people I think are thinking it's just the output, right? So I want to make sure that the output is exactly. ethically generated, but I think what you're saying, exactly. right? So that's where if I ask an artificial intelligence thing, I get sort of a generic answer that feels like it's been ethically created. But the reality is that how do you train the model is also exactly. part of this ethical conundrum that we have in relation to how that artificial intelligence actually gets built. Is that fair? That's that's a that's a very fair statement. And Go ahead, sorry, uh, interrupt. If we, if we if we take no no that's that's perfectly fine. So if we take for example the the Dali uh, platform uh, as a, as an example, the immediate uh, ethical let's say question is okay. Well, this model has been trained on a number of different artworks created by artists, right? And now it's generating output which holds no copyrights right so so this is this is it came out of the thin air but does it or doesn't it because this is really topical because we just had stable diffusion getting sued by getty images for saying you took all of our images without our permission you didn't pay for the license you stripped off the watermarks and then you created similar things to this and then you're saying it's yours and you pay no license fees exactly. you do nothing so i mean is that part of what you're talking it's only part of what you're talking it's about no it, it, it absolutely is part of what I'm what I'm talking about, and I'd be very interested to learn the outcomes of this uh, this court case, this lawsuit. Well, it's a watershed. They Go ahead. Implications. They will have implications. Uh, you know, far-reaching implications into into the industry. Absolutely. Because now, now you have this uh, this model that can generate any number of you know similar images inspired by original artworks, and yet you know you you owe the original artist nothing for that so this is a concept that people can immediately kind of grasp right uh because it's it's quite similar to the, the old joke about you you wouldn't copy a car right so you wouldn't pirate uh an mp3 song or a video or a video game but another aspect which is which is much more i think sinister is when you get into the applications of ai for things like surveillance defense in in the medical industry for sure how, They're how? the so for example let's let's take a, a, an ml powered uh, surveillance platform that has been trained across uh, different facial images essentially photos of people right yep. and at this point this system is left to run relatively or completely unsupervised and through its intricate me mechanisms it begins maybe not singling out, but heavily biased and heavily discriminating against a particular subset of people. Right. So we worry based about on, racial based on any number of trends. Yes, racial, we worry about profiling, racial profiling in height, the real weight. world, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and the the the, the, the implications there are are you know huge can make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. But this is one aspect of ethical AI, the output, right? And this is what most people focus on. Right. However, there's another ethical aspect within, within the AI domain, which is the, the input, so to speak, the input. So let's say that in order for you to train this model, you have to assemble 100,000 images of people's faces, right? Sure. How do you source this data? 
How do you make sure that within this data set that you're collecting for training purposes, there is sufficient representation of every single, let's say, uh, race, uh, skin color, uh, facial features, any, any number of parameters. And the bias that you introduce when collecting this data set, because let's be honest, this is not the interesting, this is not the sexy part of, of developing an AI. This is the, the part where that you have to get done, right? So, so what normally happens is you outsource this to an, any number of data uh, collection uh, service providers, and, and you know you hope for you hope for the best. You, you put together a nice set of instructions. Um, you set acceptance and rejection standards. Uh, but it, you know these are things that you that that th the challenge there is the human verification, right? Because we're talking about enormous volumes of data. So inevitably, the level of you know human supervision and verification will will go down, and sort of stealthily under the radar bias can be introduced at the level of training data that you're using to train your, your machine learning model. So, so you, you end up with the expectation of having a very you know, non-biased model, but that can in fact turn out to be not the case, right? Yeah, but I mean, where does bias come from? If you, <laughs> with no external stimuli, a normal, whatever that means, but a born child has no embedded, I think, biases per se. And they're introduced in different ways, right? Sure. Some good, some bad, sure. some amazing, some horrible, like whatever they are, but they're introduced in certain ways. So the presumption to me that a model, an artificial intelligence or machine learning model that's being programmed or created by humans cannot be created without the biases that those humans have for exactly. the most part, because most exactly. humans don't even understand because they're not self-aware enough to know what their own biases are. That's the beginning. Exactly. Of it. Go ahead. Exactly. Sorry. Or they are aware. They are aware of it, but they they don't consider this a bias. Right. And this can and, and this can be, uh, this can come to be based on any number of of social, economic, personal features that are defined by by where this person was born, how they were brought up. Where they receive their education, you know, any any number of things that really define us what we are as, as humans, right? Yeah. Our recent our recent interactions, both positive and negative, uh, the the geopolitical situation in the region, for example, because, for example, a lot of the like the major data collection, data annotation service providers out there, they have a vast workforce which is distributed. A lot of these people are in uh, countries like India or or Thailand, uh, China, Brazil, all over the world. Fair enough. So when you delegate the task of collecting and annotating the data to a particular a workforce located in a particular place, you are more or less likely to kind of stealthily introduce the bias that exists within that. Yeah, sorry, can, can I ask this question? Because I want to come up, I'm, try, I'm struggling here to come up with a non-controversial bias. So here's, here's what I've come up with. If you show a cow, a picture of a cow, to somebody in Wyoming, they're going to think right. dinner. Yes. Even dinner, a live cow. They'll just think cattle is for sustenance. There's milk there, there's food, there's meat there. That's great. 
But if you show that exactly. to somebody that doesn't eat meat, and I'm going to say India because that's just the bias that I have around the way cows work there for the most part, they're not sure. going to think the same thing. It's still a cow. But the implications sure. of that cow are not dinner. They're maybe pet. I, I don't know, but you know what I mean? Exactly. I like that's exactly. that controversial. Exactly. And, 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 it, and it comes up in, in the most unexpected places, right? For, take, for example, a company developing farming equipment, right? Yes. So you can have a, a, a potato harvester, potato planter, uh, potato sorting machine, which uh, has an optical sensor. It has a, a machine learning model sitting behind it. And it's trained to recognize, let's say, potatoes based on size, quality, any number of different parameters. Right. Depending on where your workforce was at the time the data was collected and annotated, they, your model can have a drastically different idea of what a quality potato is as opposed to somebody who is living in the Netherlands, for example, or Germany, or even Bulgaria, or the U.S., right? Because... For the majority of your life, because of the geographical region where you're located and because of the, the local climate, potatoes have always had a certain size, a certain shape, a certain color, maybe, right? And to you, what looks like a very good potato, something that you would be happy to put on your table for dinner, might end up being unacceptable for the Western European market. And that's an extreme case. And obviously this can be treated through, you know, proper guidelines and, and quality control during the annotation process. So I'm, I'm kind of taking this, you know, a step too far. Uh, but I just want to illustrate the, the minute ways in which bias can creep up into, into AI. So how, do we, so how do we deal with this, right? In other words, you mentioned the fact that these models are at some level trained by humans. I mean, that's what humans in the loop, I guess, is doing, right? And you can dig deeper into that as well. But if humans globally are going out and just in this case, we're talking about annotating images, you're right. A delicious looking potato, again, in Idaho is going to look really different than a delicious looking potato in Thailand, potentially, right? If it's got different yes. shape, because when I think about a potato that was served to me at dinner in the United States when I was a kid, it's like this perfect oval shaped, it cracks open, I can drop some butter in it, put a little salt on it, and I'm good to go. But maybe in other co countries and cultures, it doesn't matter like, I didn't know this when I was a kid, but plenty of the potatoes that are grown in the United States literally got thrown away or got turned into French fries because they didn't look exactly. good, even though they tasted perfectly fine. But again, yeah. the that's just a potato example. But imagine if you're annotating photos of criminals. What does a criminal look like? Once you get into this, because potatoes aren't that controversial. Exactly. But here's the exactly. thing. When you get into this idea of faces and... What's this word you use? Like just identifying people. Shouldn't yep. there, I mean, there's so many ethical questions here around like, okay, you can take a camera that's over there and do face recognition of me, but I didn't say that was okay even. Like you're not even backing up into the person who's analyzing my face. I walk down the street exactly. today and people with their cameras, I just go like this. I don't want to get photographed, right? But I can't stop exactly. that camera from photographing me because otherwise I'd have to wear a mask all day. Exactly, exactly. And, and, and then when you get into the really interesting applications of this, which are, you know, for, for example, workspace monitoring, which on the surface of it are just be done be, to, to basically ensure the most efficient utilization of resources, which is office space, equipment, et cetera, right? Yeah. But then when you combine this with facial recognition, that's also combined with uh, sentiment detection. 
So you're looking at this face and the model makes a prediction on whether this person is bored, engaged, irritated, angry, you know, uh, whether he, he starting to drift towards aggressive behavior. And, and these are, you know, really, really interesting and scary topics because again, when, when we, when we get back to, to even providing the source data for this, you know, uh, it's so, it's so easy to introduce uh, bias, right? Because take, for example, your, your localized workforce in, in a particular part of the world, and it doesn't matter which it is, but they can have a drastically different idea of what an angry person looks like, you know, not in the extreme cases, because I think that's fairly obvious to us as, as human beings. But when you start looking at like minute details on a person's face and uh, something which to me clearly indicates irritation to another person might be, you know, that's, that's the way people look. People in, in, in Eastern Europe are not perhaps, and, and uh, you know, I don't want to sound controversial or anything, but are perhaps not the, the most frequently smiling people. They, we don't walk around smiling all day long. <laughs> so, so to us, that could very well mean, well, no, this person is you know, he's having a normal day. Yeah. You could be yeah. the happiest person in the world, but you don't have to be smiling about it. Look, I had some, I was at a tech conference in Vietnam at the beginning of January. And I mean, my first time in Vietnam was 1990, but 1991, excuse me, but a lot of people that were there, this was their first time there. And they went on a tour of some tech companies and some startup companies. And one of the things they said was, it was really strange. Like around 4.30, they would just turn off the lights in the office and everybody would go to sleep for like 40 minutes. Yeah. You would never do that in Germany. But it doesn't Absolutely. make them bad workers at all. That's just what they do. And maybe they wake up after that and work for another six hours until like 11 o'clock at night. So yeah, yeah there's a tons yeah. of ways that bias can get input into into this process. But there's there's more than that too, right? So Humans in the Loop is staffing all over the world, right? And the mission here, again, tell me if I'm wrong, is to take these people that may not be doing that may not be involved in this work. Like maybe you just want to run through what this is so people can get a better understanding of it and then how you're trying to interdict and to try to take some of this bias out of this process and 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 make it better? I don't know what the right word is. Go ahead. Sure, sure. So, so uh, Humans in the Loop as, a, as an organization, it's, um, it's a kind of a hybrid enterprise. Um, so we have a for-profit company, which is uh, operating in the AI space, so to speak. And we provide data annotation uh, and data collection and model live monitoring services. Okay. The way we're, we're structured is we contract with our annotators and we source them uh, based on uh, the fact that these people have been affected uh, by war and conflict and natural disasters in their place of residence. Okay. So the majority of our annotators uh, have been affected by these horrible things and they are unable to find you know, uh, a dignified means of employment. Uh, something that would allow them to get their their lives back on track and to and to lead a happy life. So our idea was, and our our founder's idea, Eva Gunishka, who is our, our founder, uh, when she set up Humans in the Loop back in 2017, she had the idea. Well, why not bring these people closer and to the to to these job opportunities, but not only to these job opportunities in the IT world, and not only in the IT world, but in one of the most cutting edge 
areas within yeah. IT, which is the development of artificial intelligence and, and machine learning. And uh, the most, I guess, straightforward way for that to happen was to basically connect these people with these data collection and data annotation projects that we've been working on for the past uh, five, close to six years now. And uh, our our workforce, as you rightly put it, we, we do uh, have a global workforce. Um, at the moment, we're focused on working with um, partnership through partnerships with partners who are partnering organizations who are based within these uh, affected regions, uh, such as Syria, Yemen, uh, Iraq, Afghanistan. We're launching uh, an amazing pilot program with um, a partnering organization in Ukraine and another partnering organization in the Democratic Republic of Congo, cool. uh, which we hope to kind of spin up uh, in the coming weeks and, and months. Super cool. And our the makeup of our annotative annotation workforce is is super diverse. Uh, we have you know obviously representation from people from these uh, these regions. There's a, a, a very significant percentage of of women uh, within our workforce, and that in and of itself kind of immediately sets us up to be a more, let's say, a more ethical, a more fair, uh, and a more diverse, bias-free service provider. You're already taking a vulnerable population, right? So you, you said Syria right. and Yemen, and the first thing that comes to my mind is just war, right? Because, and Correct. Ukraine, obviously, we don't need to go into that, but same type of thing. And then inside of those vulnerable populations, if most of them are women and families that have been affected by war, Correct. What is the implication for them of now being involved in this? Does it make them more of a target in the places where they live? Does it make them more elite in the places where they live? Like, how does that impact their day-to-day -day lives as well when people know? Do you know what I mean? Like, when I was a kid, if you, if you lived in Armonk, New York, and you worked at the IBM Research Center, then people thought about you in a particular way. Sure. What are sure. the implications there as well, right? Because you're trying to create this community of sort of ethical people and ethical work and trying to make the artificial intelligence world itself more ethical. And then also trying to help these people in war-torn places, or what do you, or what do you call them? Um, conflict aff affected, which is a good word. Conflict affected, yeah. yeah. What, is, like, what is the implication of that as well? I'm curious, if anything. So, so yeah, and, and I think your, your question is, is quite... Uh, quite astute because uh, definitely there are risks involved in in any kind of activity with, within particular areas in in those broader uh, regions, uh, particularly if people know that you're um, steadily employed, uh, that right. you, you have access to to some uh, money through your your job, which is coming out from 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 the outside and it's not generated within the particular area. So we're very careful to work very closely with with our partnering organizations and and we're. Uh, very flexible and because this is part of our mission. So this is the, the reason for the existence of humans in the loop. This is a foremost priority for us, the positive impact we have right. on the lives of these people. Right. So we are, we are very kind of uh, flexible and, and very, and work very hard to ensure that all of our beneficiaries, we don't call them workers, we call them beneficiaries yep. uh, are able to, first of all, conduct the work safely wherever possible in locations where um, the required infrastructure, which would mean computers, screens, connectivity. Uh, internet connection, connectivity yeah. is available, steadily available, so that these people don't have to kind of bring home laptops, which would potentially make them a target for yeah. uh, theft or, or something 
Uh, worse, again, it all goes through our close relationships with, with these organizations that work with displaced people and refugees on the ground, and they really have an, an abundance of knowledge and experience in how to safely uh, tackle these, uh, these subjects. Because we are, as a core, the core of the organization is obviously based in in, uh, in Bulgaria. So right. we also work closely with people that have been displaced and that have migrated to Bulgaria, um, and are now um, seeking, uh, you know, employment and and, a, and an improved life uh, in in Bulgaria and in other countries in, in the EU as well. So so yeah, it's it's definitely a topic that is um, high on our priority list. Uh, and I'm happy to say that we um, we have not had any you know unfortunate you know incidents um, related to you know how our work is is affecting and positioning these people within their society. Yeah, and look, I feel like at the beginning of any of any new sort of secular trend, there are always going to be risks, right? Sure. And yet, the yep. pioneers in these places, and whether it's in Syria or in Yemen or in Africa, as you mentioned as well the first people that do this are really like heroic and, and, and very much pioneers. But as it becomes more and more normalized, they run the risk of actually becoming super elite people, right? Because they're involved in something that's changing the lives of people, not just in their town or in their country, but in the whole world. Here's the thing, right? Yeah. If we were having a conversation about artificial intelligence, even just a year ago or two years ago, prior to GPT-3 or Dolly, like literally blowing up all over the world, most people wouldn't even have thought about this, right? Because it had no impact directly on their lives. And even if it did, they wouldn't have understood how. Right. But now right. that it has, we have to start thinking about this and having these conversations, no? Absolutely. Absolutely. And these conversations need to be held every day by people of every walk of life. Yep. Because that will then channel the, the and I, I, I hate this phrase, general public, but I I'll resort to it again. So to channel the general public's energy and attention and, and to keep focus and keep pressure on the industry to not kind of deprioritize these aspects of the development of the technology, which are related to the you know ethics yep. and, and the true positive impact on, on our lives. So for example, if, if you take humans in the loop, we have a, a fairly straightforward guidelines as to which projects we can, we can work on. So we don't work on any content moderation uh, projects because that has uh, privacy censorship implications uh, or connotations. Uh, we don't work on any surveillance or defense um, related projects not the least of which because it will be completely insensitive to to the people that uh, constitute our, our annotation uh, teams. And also we prioritize projects where the output or, or, or the goal or the mission of the underlying machine learning platform AI model is directly related to creating a positive impact on people and, and society. So medical projects, right. uh, you got crop, and crop irrigation, uh, geospatial uh, projects related to conservation of natural resources. Those are the projects that we heavily prioritize when, uh, when sourcing uh, new opportunities for us to work on. Do you work with these big companies like OpenAI and Google and, and Microsoft and stuff like that that are more prominent out there in having these conversations about artificial intelligence and their implications for the rest of the technology world? Or have you not built those relationships yet? 
So we we definitely do uh, work with them, and, and unfortunately, like you, I'm sure you can understand, we are under pretty uh, strict uh, non-disclosure. Yeah, I don't want to uh, know the answer. I don't want to know like the details about it. I'm just curious if you do work with them. That's all I want to know. For sure, for sure, we do we do work with them. Uh, but you have to understand, compared to some of the major players on on the market, we are a fairly small organization, and we offset that with. With our ability to kind of quickly pivot within projects, uh, we also are heavily differentiated by our um, social mission that's at the heart of the organization, the makeup of our annotation teams, and, and our ability to really take on small, um, small in terms of volume of data that needs to be processed, but rather complex in terms of the understanding that you need in order to do a good annotation job. So this right. is not; these are not projects where you would just, you know, uh, put a bounding box on, a, on an apple or, or a strawberry and, yeah. and call it a day because those are fairly straightforward. But there are projects where you need to have multiple iterations where you need to really clarify what the designers of the, the machine learning algorithm consider a good instance of a given object or, or situation and to be able to pinpoint those in, in the raw data. Do you find that you have to change the, the training of the beneficiaries? Do I have that name right? Absolutely, yep. Depending on where they're based? Um, that's an interesting question. So, so uh, obviously because of the, the different cultural and language uh, makeup, of, uh, of our group of beneficiaries, mm -hmm. we do have to adapt also because of the availability of resources. Sure. So sometimes we can do one-to-one -one training sessions with, you know, in a, in a complete like normal corporate style uh, online session with people joining from different places. Other times we have to take great efforts to organize and to bring people to a central location where we can do uh, one-to-many style uh, training session. So yeah, but we're happy to adapt and, and again, it's, it's part of what sets us apart from, from the competition that don't really have that capability just because their annotation force is that, that, uh, that large. Okay. Gary, look, I want to do this. I want to let you go, but I want to offer you, uh, and I offered this to Eva as well. I mean, I last spoke to her. She introduced me to you, right? So obviously I invited right. her to be on. She said, talk to Gary instead. But what I want to do is I want to offer to both of you the opportunity as things arise, as new topics come up, as you go to more conferences and you want to talk about specific topics, I highly encourage you to reach out to me. And if you have any partners that want to come on the show to talk about this, we can continue this conversation about artificial intelligence and the ethics around it, about ethical AI. I'd love to have more people on to have more of these conversations. I'm offering that to you and I'm, I want to do it on the recording so people know that they have a place to come to listen to it. Because I do want to, I do think we need to continue to have these conversations. So the general public can be more informed about what's happening here, not just about the sort of impact it has on their own lives, but that it has on society and on technology as a whole. So I, I do want to let you go. I really want to thank you for doing this. I love these conversations. I learn something every time I talk about this and I get to kind of reframe the way I think about it. So I really appreciate it. Is, was there something else you wanted to mention or... Uh, I, I would like on my side to just thank you for, for inviting me and for giving us as an organization the opportunity to, to talk about these topics and, and to put our name out there. Uh, we're more than happy to, to come on, on the podcast again and, and talk about more topics because really we're, as a society, as a global society, we're just scratching the surface we right are. now. And, yep. and we at Humans in the Loop, we're very focused on you know this concept of always keeping the the human 
relevant, keeping yeah. the human in the loop. In the loop, yeah. And this is what our development as an organization and, and as, a, as a portfolio of services that we offer is going to follow in the next weeks and months of, of this year, kind of offering tools to our customers to have an easy way of having human verification for their already trained and, and working uh, AI models. And I'd be very happy to, to come on again and or, um, to invite my, my colleagues uh, as well, uh, Eva and, and our technical chief technical officer as well, so we can uh, talk about these topics in more detail. Thank you again. Gavril Gavriloff, Gary, the chief commercial officer of Humans in the Loop. I really appreciate you doing this today. Thank you very much, uh, Michael. I appreciate it as well. I wish you all the best and look forward to speaking again.